Welcome to DevOps Sauna. My name is Lauri and I am the Chief Marketing Officer of Efficode. Not too long ago, we held a hugely popular two-day DevOps 2020 event. We had awesome speakers from around the world telling stories about DevOps tools and culture for over a thousand people online. Since then, um, we have made these recordings available at the Efficode website, and due to the popularity of these speeches, we have now made them also available in our podcast. You can find the links to the video recording and to the materials referred in the speeches in the show notes. We are also keen to feature topics that you find interesting in the area of DevOps in this podcast. Do let us hear about you in our Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn pages. Today, it's a big day. We are going to hear Kosuke Gawaguchi's speech from the DevOps 2020 event. Kosuke is a passionate about developer productivity. Early on, he has helped this cause as a developer, building numerous open source projects, most notably award-winning Jenkins. Kosuke's topic today is data-driven DevOps, the key to improving speed and scale. I'm probably best known as the guy who did Jenkins because um, it is an open source project that a lot of you have probably heard of. Um, it's, it's got this massive installation around the world and I'd like to think it's been helping teams everywhere around the world. Um, I've also used that to kind of start with um, CloudBees, which is a business around the, well, around Jenkins, at least at one point. Now it's a much bigger company than that. Uh, but through um, CloudBees, I've been a part of helping enterprises everywhere you know, doing DevOps and better digital transformation. Um, and then I also recently sort of like I switched the gear once again and then started working on this new small company called Launchable. Um, it's around the smarter testing and faster DevOps. And I'll get to touch a little bit of like uh, what I what's doing uh, later because you know the, naturally it's kind of aligned with what I, my passion and interest has been, um, and then that's really the topic of the today. I think you know if you look back and uh, if you, even just a few years, I think the automation came a really long way. Um, I in fact okay when I started engineering, like a nightly build was still a new thing, and uh, the build was done by um, the actual people that's for the these engineers. Um, so what started as something simple like that, and then like just an idea of running tests nightly, then continuous integrations and then continuous delivery and so on and so forth. Uh, but all these automation got a lot more sophisticated and much bigger. So I'm pretty sure many of you today have you know some form of automations like you know perhaps like this, you know, the build and test and deployment and releases. Um, and I hope you see, you know, yourself in there. Or like, but I'd actually contend that, you know, you might think this is what you have, but in reality, what you have is more like this. You know, like um, it just doesn't fit into this nicer picture and lines. And there's like a, so many processes here and there. Some of them you probably haven't even noticed because it's been done by other teams. Um, and then, so that's the. Um, when we talk to people doing software development, like, you know, these are the kind of the world that they live in. Um, and then when you are, in some sense, all of these complicated pieces, and they are automated, at least they're scripted. So you know, small, only a small part of it is to be by humans. But because it's so, you know, like a 
widespread and like a span around across like a so many different parts, it's often difficult to make sense of what's going on. Well, it's got this feeling of uh, like uh, trying to watch how individual bees are behaving in a beehive and then use that to understand the bigger, like you know, the hive behavior. Uh, well, that simply, it's just not possible. Um, but when I often, I feel like that when, you know, I show up in some workplace and people show me their Jenkins instance and then there are all these like uh, jobs that's doing something visually, I just don't have a bigger picture of what's truly going on. So. After sort of seeing so many of these companies, I started feeling there are sort of like a two, two kinds of companies or teams here. The one is you know, donkeys, the other is unicorns. They kind of look alike, but uh, they are very different. Um, and I, I started feeling so naturally, like what makes their differences? And then I, my, one of the, my hypotheses that I'm sort of coming down to is it seems like the, the one of the critical differences how they use the data to drive the process itself. And what do I mean by data? Um, because in some sense, you know, this, if you think about it, all these automations, like all these individual boxes and, you know, are producing lots of data that comes out of this automation, in some, and then, but we are not really using them, aside from the, you know, the time when they fail, and then you kind of have to look into it. Um, and then it's starting to feel like it's a wasted gold mine. Um, I don't know if this is true or not, but I've heard, uh, I've read somewhere that um, e-waste, this like an old computer thrown away by volume contains like so much more gold and precious metals than the uh, gold mine. So like the argument was like, it might actually make sense to like a mine these as opposed to the, you know, the actual uh, gold ore. Um, so I sometimes start to feel, I start, to, I feel like um, this data that we produce out of this automation has a similar potential value that's currently not utilized and just basically uh, wasting the space in the, uh, the cloud box. Let me look at um, bit some uh, example of the concrete cases. So imagine yourself in a company who uh, that has like hundreds of engineers working on tens of projects. Um, and then this company has you know, one shared Jenkins infrastructure that's doing everything from building and testing and whatnot. Um, and then, you know, they are spending hundreds of thousands of AWS costs to, to get all these build and test execution going. So it is fine, you know, in a Silicon Valley startup world, the cost is not necessarily the top of the concern. Uh, they can always come back and they can put that in control or so, so the thinking goes. Uh, but when this company went closer to IPO, the CFO had to again get that book in order. And then he started noticing that, oh, like this money, like we're spending lots of money to AWS. Exactly what is it used for? Like how valuable is it? Like, is there any way to cut that cost? And those are all natural questions. And, you know, given what's going on in the world today, which is forcing me to do this from my home, I have a feeling like many of you will start hearing these kind of questions in the coming days if you haven't already. In this case, well, it turns out that um, a company had really, you know, was, was clueless. If you are involved in this kind of build infrastructure and you have so many different workloads coming on, it's even hard, it's hard to know like which one of them are costing a lot of money or what they are being used for, or let alone, you know, like whether that needs to be contained or not. So what should have happened um, was, really like to provide some level of visibility into the cost 
at the project level. And so, you know, in this, in this Jenkins instance form, they provided this, the central DevOps team provided three kinds of, uh, you know, VM instances as a template. And then now here simplified by small, medium, and large. Um, so the instincts of developers and the projects was naturally, okay, like something. So, you know, they start with a good citizen. So like they might start with small, but as soon as something doesn't work out, you know, like a flaky test or, or the build is taking too long and this is frustrating. Now they bump it up to some bigger instance. And then like there is simply no incentive to bring it back into the smaller instance to look at the program because the economic signal is lost. So what should have happened is like if the Jenkins had a way of making developers aware of the, the, you know, the trade-off that they are making in terms of you know, time gain versus the cost reduction, um, then that would help them pick the right thing. Like if it's a you know, PR validation, people might choose to like, you know, value the build time faster because like the previous speaker said, people waiting has a lot of cost. But if this is some like a nightly execution, maybe it was okay to go for the smaller instances and take a longer time. But depending on the activity level at the project, these things could also evolve over time. Um, so this is a very simple example of providing data that the system should already have uh, that driving the right behavior um, and then making the organization just a little bit smarter, right? Um, and then it's not that hard. And then that's what I mean. Like there's lots of lower hanging fruits like that. Um, here's another example of where I felt like the data could be used into a good use. So now imagine a little bigger company. So like a thousand of engineers uh, working on a massive embedded software. And uh, here also they have one DevOps team that runs every infrastructure. So, so what happens here is because they have such a massive you know, parallelized build and test form going. Um, when the build failed, like, you know, they, there can be two reasons. One is the uh, legitimate failure in the applications um, or the test, in which, in which case the product engineers need to be notified. But sometimes these failures happens because of a infrastructure problem, whether, um, you know, like a Garrett server down or um, the, the GitHub is being inaccessible or like a database or the test environment is crap. Um, so in those cases, it tends to create this massive failure across the board because everyone, every test and every build relies on those. Um, and then as an infrastructure engineer, as a DevOps team, you don't want app developers to be bothered by these failures that they can't act on. Um, so there's this like a there's this desire to send a notification to quote unquote the right place. Right? So how can you do that? Um, in fact, multiple people independently, the team that I talked to uh, deployed, like, solved this problem in their own way. Like one team, I, I saw uh, they, they deployed you know the simplest tool known to the software engineers. It's like a regular expression, right? It always like it works as a mighty bandaid and that keeps them delivering. So what uh, what this team has done is to look for the common failure patterns, you know, like whether the stack trace or the, the log messages, um, and then like, if the if the failure matches that, then the notification is goes is going to certain certain kind, like the DevOps team. Um, and another more sophisticated team, I believe this is actually a Finland company. Uh, they deployed a Bayesian filter, which is are known as a, it's a, it's a statistical tool uh, that originally used for um, the uh, spam filters. 
So the idea is like, you know, they train this Bayesian filter by telling you this kind of failure should go to, this failure should go to DevOps team, this failure should go to app team. And if you do that enough times, um, the, the program itself, the filter itself start to pick up the queue and then start delivering things. Um, and then the beauty of it is when they deliver these email notifications based on the guess that this Bayesian filter did, there was this button that says, not my problem. So if the app developer incorrectly got emailed and they can press the not my problem button, and that teaches the filter that, okay, it has misclassified. So it was a very clever system. I'm sure it's not huge, not, not a big deal, right? I mean, this isn't like building a massive system, but even something, again, even something simple like this had a, had a substantial impact uh, to the productivity and the credibility of the DevOps team. And to me, that's another example of the data being used to improve the software development productivity. So as I was thinking about these examples, and then this was also around the time that um, um, I was, I became a, I mean, CTO at the Cloudbees. So the, what I realized was this, like using data effectively is incredibly important at the organizational level, right? So I'm sure many of you have these frustrations that like, you know what the right thing that needs to be done to improve your software delivery processes, but it's, you're struggling to get that um, communicated to your boss or rally the organization around it. And it just, it just does not get prioritized enough. So, um, you know, as a, as a leader, like this, I think this would be the easier job to convince the organizations that this is a, this is the right effort for the benefit of the organizations and data and associated story really helps your boss and stakeholders see the problem that you see. I think we often have this tendency in the software engineers to rely on the belief and common value system to to sort of skip the arguments, right? Like many of the things we do, like even stuff like that in the DevOps or like a testing, it's often difficult to quantify. Um, and, and so we tend to say, well, those are good things, like a self-evidently good things, and we tend to stop there. But of course, then it's no wonder that the people who don't come from the same background and don't see the reality as clearly as you can not to get it. And then so data, I think, has been a common language in the business for the longest amount of time to, to bridge that gap. And I think the second from that, you know, data help also helps you apply the effort to the right place. I mean, it, I think we also all need to be humble. Um, that um, the where we think makes a difference could be also wrong. And then so in some sense, it's a homework to prove yourself that what you think needs to be done actually needs to be done. And then again, data is a tool for that. And finally, you know, many of these efforts that we've been talking about, especially in DevOps, like it tends to take a long time to start making an impact. Um, so data can also help you show the impact of your work before it sort of start turn, like turn into more tangible things. Um, and then so that helps people, you know, that helps stakeholders feel better that their return, their investment is getting, you know, it's getting a return. Um, and then so that's, that's sort of the, and in turn enable the continued investment and then, you know, increase, increase your credibility. Uh, so that when you need to take on the next step, like when you need to ask for the next investment, then it comes a little more easily. So I think in many ways, the data plays a key role. And I think we, we, we cannot underestimate the importance of that. If you think of the software as a kind of factory, I know this is all the analogy, but 
essentially, like, you know, we, we turn the ideas and thoughts uh, into a functioning, you know, zeros and ones that runs on the computer. And in between is what we generally consider the software factory. So, um, the, so what we, what we need to get to, the picture that we need to get to is really the notion that like, we need to observe what's happening in the software factory uh, and then use that information to feed the continuous improvement and learning. And in the manufacturing domain, this is often called like Kaizen or Aline. Um, that's one of the proud traditions that comes out of Japan, I, I'd add. Um, so that's kind of it, right? Like we are not, this isn't also groundbreaking or shattering ideas. It's been said and done in many places before. Uh, but if you look at the software development from this perspective, you know, this continuous learning and improvements, it started to, like, it, you know, it, it makes sense that um, the, some people started applying like machine learning uh, or the, so like, uh, the statistical approach, like what I mentioned, the Bayesian future to the kind of program. Um, and then, so this is where I see like a, some of more cutting edge efforts are happening. So, you know, the, the one thing that uh, really blew my mind was this like a smarter testing. So, so for this situation, like imagine, um, imagine a big company, you know, the, you're in the DevOps teams uh, that has this, I mean, the business has been hugely successful. So you have a massively, but modernized, but modularized code base. So it's not a complete spaghetti. It being, it's been taken well care of. It was, it's just so big. Um, and then more importantly, because this project has been worked on by so many people over such a long time, it amasses a lot of big time consuming tests collectively um, that's in the range of um, the millions. Um, so, you know, at this scale, the challenge becomes the time and like a cost it takes to build and then test this software. So the team was trying to cut down the cost uh, and then reduce the time it takes for developers to get the feedback for the change. So a step, like the first step of their work was very like a, you know, somewhat like easier, at least for me to think about, which is a dependency analysis. So imagine like you have files at the bottom of this, you know, the diamond uh, graph, the diamond picture, that's multiple files getting grouped into modules, which is these squares in the middle. Um, and then like these modules are often tested. So I reduce the, um, the orange circle to represent that. So you can compute the, well, most of the build tools have this dependency information within so that you can uh, analyze and infer, run inferences on this, on top of these things. You could statistic, like you could statically rather determine when these files have changed, these are the module that needs to be rebuilt. And these are the tests that should be rerun uh, because they might be impacted. Um, so at the first step, they have done this kind of work. Um, as far as I know, like, uh, on average, when I go see teams, many of teams aren't even doing that. Like, you know, the people just generally just, just run the whole fresh build from start, uh, doing everything from scratch. And that's just adding a lot of that time. So the fact that this company, this big company went through the step one is great. Um, but what truly amazing is they didn't stop there because the scale is so big that this wasn't simply enough. So the next step, they did what we call the predictive test selection. The idea is like they train the machine learning model that predicts uh, the what are the useful subset of the test to run. Um, and then based on the information about the changes that came in, uh, the model predicts, okay, let's run this subset because from the historical behavior, 
uh, we think this is a, these are more likely to catch regressions. Um, and then they can get that kind of historical behavior because their system is processing through you know, 10 to the power of five. So that's uh, like hundreds of thousands of changes per month. Is that right? Did I get that math right? Is it just like a sample that 1% of that? They run the full build and they run the full test to see, to, to, to train the model. Um, and then this was, a, so this has a remarkable impact. They reported that the, the model was able to select about a third of the tests. Um, and then uh, only misses about 0.1% of the broken chains. Um, and then so with minimal loss of efficiency, uh, they were able to cut AWS cost in half. Um, and you can imagine in this kind of like a big company, this would be a significant money saving. Um, and not only, not to mention that like a feedback time reduction. So, um, so I started thinking, wow, this is amazing. Um, and then this clearly is useful, like beyond big company, because after all, like how many companies in the world are developing at that scale? Um, I think the predicting the probability of a test failure has many uses. Um, so, you know, like I personally, like in my own product, I had this experience where we had to wait for up to an hour for the CI to you know, clear your pull request, and then the code review would start. And then now once the code review results in these additional code changes, that's going to take another hour of the whole test cycle uh, to, to before that change can get in. Or I know many of you work in places where there's like a massive night integration test that takes multiple hours. It's so much so to the point that like you can really only run every night. Um, so these are, you know, like unsexy reality that we hate to, uh, to talk in conferences, but I'm you know here to admit that I've been one of those people. Um, so, you know, if you have, if you could predict the failures of individual test cases, um, then what we can do is essentially like assault things so that we run the high risk test first, and that should result in like a mass, massive um, reduction in time to first failure. The idea being like as a developer, as soon as you get the first failure, you get to work on that fix. So that would be really helpful. Um, or you could also just extract it, like a high value portion of the test suite and then run them. And that creates more meaningful adaptive subset of the changes. So that's, and that can be, that can have so many different uses. And this is like me, what, what eventually drove me down to this path of Launchable. Um, so I'm working on this project more head on now. Now, if the problem is interesting to you, I love to swap notes and share ideas. So please drop us a note in here. Okay, so um, again, yeah, it's my um, so I need to, I also need to hurry up here. Um, so the another here is another example of uh, a company using machine learning to like a, to make a significant impact. So this one is more by a SRE team, um, and in this company they, they are pretty far along in the continuous delivery process. So you know they have hundreds of apps deploying on average like a one deployment per day. So it, that's pretty awesome. Um, uh, on, the, on the other hand, if you're a SRE team, um, if there are so many things landing on in the production, and you're the first one to observe the failures and firefight that. So how can we? So how how can you do that better? Like, can we flag the risky deployment beforehand? So here they also use a similar you know the technology techniques to so train the model based on the past deployment records. So they said about like a one. Our uh, one year worth of deployment, which has like a 440,000 deployment records, of which only 100 are failures. So I was looking, I was thinking, like, okay, that's actually amazing success rate of the deployment. 
And then here they are even trying to get better. Um, and if I got their numbers right, which to be honest felt almost too good to be true, but if that was to be believed, they said the model was able to 99, predict 99% of the failing deployment um, and then at the, at the rate of only 5% false alarm. Um, so it's almost, it's, well, it's, yeah, so it's, it's, it's pretty darn good the model was able to. Um, and then they were able to extract the insight um, out of the system before they trained this model. They, they are, you know, what they were doing is ask the developers what they thought is a low risk change versus high risk change. So they use that information as signal. Um, and then they, they, the model was able to quantitatively uh, convince, show that this, this uh, developer's perception was actually not valuable uh, or that um, most strategies happen. Uh, when the you know, approval, the, the code change to approval has a short time window. In other words, when the change is rushed, then the problem is more likely. Or that the uh, long maintained code, the, the code base that's been around for longer, uh, tends to be more riskier. Now, you know, in, if you might think, well, duh, like you know, none of these things sounds like particularly. Like we all knew, like instinctively, right? There is this, this. This simply isn't a surprise. But I think that's where you're sort of underestimating the power of the data. So in this case, you know, in this company was able to put the actual number on it. So not only they can say long maintained code is more risky, they could say like every month that they, the code base is living longer, the deployment is fading like, you know, the, like say 10% more likely. And that translates into like X dollar figure or the lost like a sales opportunity or something like that, right? So. So what that's so that message like doesn't need the receiving end to know the value of refactoring or like a constant code maintenance. Like they can simply put the dollar figure to justify the necessary effort, which might be again rewriting these old services, uh, but it doesn't take any belief in face. So that's I think the power of the data. So some of these things, like you know, seeing some of these success and like a story has got me thinking. You know, like I used to think. A, like a smaller, nimble team of elite developers can do a whole lot. And then these large, big companies are like a more slower, you know, like a, a Goliath, you know, they can't really move fast. Um, they are sort of constrained by the processes and et cetera. Uh, they, and compared to these small elite team is like a David, David versus Goliath. And I, you know, I felt resonated being a part of the startup, like in David kind of company. But you know, like with, one of the common traits between those last two stories is that in both cases, they utilize the power of data at scale, right? So like, you know, I wonder, I was no longer sure which is donkeys and which are unicorns. You know, these smaller teams never be able to amass that kind of data uh, to drive the productivity gain that this larger company did. Yeah, that, that really sort of shaped my, uh, uh, you know, shaped my confidence. Those are sort of like a truly inspiring example, and uh, not many of the companies are quite quite there yet. But um, but we all know, you know, we all trying to go from this like a donkeys. I, I know we don't admit that that's that's who they are, but that's the reality. So yeah, we also um, what was I trying to say? Yeah, so I know some traits of the common donkeys. You know um, that 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 existing here, um, that people are doing things differently, et cetera. 
Um, and then I think some of the key traits of the unicorn seems to be like there's this, and everyone is doing things in one way um, that's uh, moving the, that allows the DevOps teams to more autonomous and take control of the stations. Um, and then app teams feel like these lower level concerns, quote unquote bullshit is taken care of by the DevOps teams. And that seems to create the positive feedback cycle. Um, so yeah, so with that note, yeah, I think the automation, I think the automation is a table stake that everyone is doing, but I think the next step of the journey is to use the data from that automation to drive progress. So I'm looking forward to hearing more of the stories from people in coming days. Okay, on that point, handing back to you. That was Kohsuke. I have to say, what you really miss in this podcast is Kohsuke's awesome unicorn graphics. Check them out in the DevOps 2020 videos. Link can be found in the show notes. That's all for today. What I say to you is don't be a donkey.